This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. When uh, Parshva, who would become the 10th Indian ancestor of Zen, first became a monk, an auspicious light illuminated the seat where he meditated, and he had a vision of 37 grains of relics, sharira, in front of him. The Buddha's relics appear as little crystals, and they uh, sometimes glow with light, and they're an auspicious sign. From then on, he progressed diligently and practiced for three years, never paying any attention to weariness. Finally, he mastered the three baskets, the trapitaka, that he set out to do, the Buddha's teachings, and he developed the three kinds of spiritual knowing, the trividya, ending ignorance like the Buddha, just as he intended, practicing diligently without sleeping or lying down for three years, he was able to uh, fulfill his aspiration for the benefit of beings. We might think it's crazy that he if he not only never lay down, but never slept at all. But uh, there's some stories that imply that the, the Buddha never fully slept. Well, we can imagine, I can imagine something like this. Not that he was hanging out and talking like continuously, but in like deep meditation, uh, for uh, um, someone like the Buddha, maybe possible to be like deeply resting in a nourishing way, like sleep, but still maintaining some uh, some subtle awareness. There are sleep yogas of being aware of being aware while sleeping. So, do we call that sleeping or not sleeping? I don't know, but maybe that's was Parshva's case. <clears throat> so after all this three years of practice, one day uh, his teacher, Venerable Buddha Mitra, was reciting a sutra, and when Parshva heard him expound the unborn, he was awakened. So we don't know what sutra this was, or what the line was in the sutra that awakened Parshva completely. He was already, had realized the three types of knowing and ended ignorance, but this was his, his Zen awakening, we might say. <coughs> Could it be that he was listening to the, the heart of great perfect wisdom sutra and overheard his teacher reciting the line? All dharmas, all phenomena 
have the characteristic or mark of emptiness. They don't arise and they don't cease. They're unborn and they're undying. Could have been that that was the line he heard, uh, the teaching of the unborn, the birthless, and then the translator puts in parentheses, and deathless. <clears throat> or could he have been hearing uh, his teacher recite the section of the um, Prajnaparamita Sutra in 8,000 lines, uh, which has a, an excerpt that uh, goes... The perfection of wisdom gives light unstained. The entire world cannot stain her. She's a source of light and from everyone in the realm of samsara, she removes all darkness. Maybe he heard that. Or maybe he just heard the mantra Gate, gate, paragate, parasam gate, bodhisvaha. These are all expounding the unborn. <coughs> and then, uh, Kazan Zenji commenting on this says, you should understand that in the practice to become a Buddha or an ancestor, Parshva diligently practiced, progressed and forgot fatigue, studied and recited sutras, and peacefully meditated and contemplated in this way. Subsequently, he always recited sutras and expounded the supreme way. The sutra, or sutras mentioned here that he recited, means genuine Mahayana sutras. Kezan says, even if it was the Buddha's teaching, if it was not a Mahayana, great vehicle sutra, he would not recite it, and he would not rely on a sutra that was not the complete truth. These Mahayana sutras do not speak of sweeping away the dust of defilement or getting rid of erroneous thoughts. That's how the Mahayana great vehicle <coughs> sutras are. The small vehicle sutras might speak of um, <clears throat> trying to eliminate erroneous thoughts and and um, cut off defilements <coughs> and afflictions. But the Mahayana sutras, according to Kazan, don't say we have to um, <clears throat> eliminate uh, erroneous thoughts or get rid of anything because the Mahayana Sutras teach that the place where thoughts arise is mind 
and the place where mind is, is nowhere. Therefore, thoughts don't need to be eliminated or gotten rid of. Sutras of complete truth do not necessarily just completely discuss the ultimate principle and the subtle, but they also exhaustively discuss phenomena, concrete matters. So this is in Japanese, the terms ri and ji. Ri is like the principle of the ultimate, and ji is like phenomena, conventional phenomena. And um, ri and ji are non-dual, the principle and phenomena uh, are inseparable, just like the two truths of the ultimate truth and conventional truth are an inseparable unity, just like thoughts and the space in which they appear are an inseparable unity. So, Kazan says, um, these Mahayana sutras, not only do they not speak of... Um, sweeping away afflictions or getting rid of erroneous thoughts, they don't just discuss the ultimate, but they also discuss particular concrete matters. <coughs> they exhaustively discuss concrete matters of conventional phenomena. This means that they discuss everything from the Buddha's first arousing the aspiration for awakening up to the Buddha's arriving at awakening and nirvana, their teaching of the three vehicles and five vehicles, the Shravaka, Bhattika Buddha, Bodhisattva vehicle, and the vehicle of humans and devas. They teach the eons uh, that it takes to establish pure lands. And they teach the Buddha's pure lands and the names of the Buddhas, and the names of their lands, and other details. This is what complete meaning, complete truth means. Thus you should understand that this is what Buddha sutras are like. <clears throat> Interesting side comments by Kazan that the, that the uh, Buddha sutras are um, not about eliminating uh, conventional phenomena and that they not only teach the ultimate, but they teach the unity of the ultimate and the conventional. <clears throat> Kazan goes on, even though you can express a phrase or grasp some principle, if you do not complete a lifetime of study, then it would be hard to call you a Buddha or or ancestor. Thus you, like Parshva, must proceed diligently and forget fatigue. <clears throat> Be unsurpassed in your aspiration for awakening and in your practice. Investigate and clarify carefully. Examine in detail and continue night and day. Establish your resolve and awaken your powers. Kazan's trying to encourage our wholehearted endeavor to practice and 
carefully investigate and clarify all these points in our direct experience according with the the great vehicle sutras. <coughs> the Buddhas and ancestors reason for appearing in the world and the preeminence of your own responsibility will be thoroughly clarified by not failing to get to the very bottom of both the ultimate and the conventional concrete matters, you will become Buddhas and ancestors by not failing to clarify the ultimate and the relative and their inseparability. The way of the ancestral teachers has fallen into disuse in recent times and there is no genuineness of practice so it's believed that it is sufficient to just grasp one phrase or one principle. These uh, people who feel that that's sufficient are probably the same type as those arrogant ones. The translator puts in parentheses, in the Lotus Sutra who left the assembly when the Buddha was about to teach the Lotus Sutra. I think I told the story earlier. <clears throat> Be careful, Kazan says. Again, just encouraging us. Um, this is an endless practice, endless verification, lifetime practice, many lifetime practice. There's no end. Um, be careful if we think that it's enough. <clears throat> As Dogen Zendi says, uh, when Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is sufficient. But when Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. Don't you know the expression? Quote, the way is like mountains because they get higher as you climb and merit is like the ocean because it gets deeper the farther you go into it. This is the spirit. <clears throat> the higher you climb, uh, the higher the mountains get and the deeper you go into the ocean, the deeper it gets. <clears throat> Entering the depths, you penetrate to the bottom. Climbing the heights, you reach the summit. Then for the first time, you will be a disciple of the Buddha. Do not vainly throw away body and mind or waste this body and mind. Everyone without exception is a vessel of Dharma. And as Yun Men said, every day is a good day. Every day is a good day to practice the way. Accordingly, as you practice and inquire carefully or not, you will be either one who has gone to the very end or one who's not. 
It's not necessarily a matter of who the person is or a matter of time, as the present situation concerning Parshva shows. He was old, more than 140 years old, but because his resolve was beyond comparison, because he went ahead vigorously and forgot fatigue, ultimately he concluded the practice and study of a lifetime. Even with his pitiful old body, they say that he attended Buddha Mitra in all things for three years without ever sleeping or lying down. People these days become negligent, especially when they get old. Remember those previous worthies in the ancient past, such as Parshva, and do not think of the discomfort of cold as the discomfort of cold, or the burning of heat as the burning of heat, or that you might die, or that you might not be up up to it mentally. If you can do this, then you will be one who searches out the ancient way and who acquires the way. If you search out the ancient way and become one with it, who will not become a Buddha or ancestor? Yes. So, to begin with, you're not getting rid of anything. But here, we're forgetting fatigue. It seems like we're getting rid of fatigue. Oh, so we're not getting rid of um, anything. Not remember. Forgetting it. Um, yeah, I, by forgetting fatigue, uh, maybe we could understand it as, um, don't let your fatigue, um, um, make you stop practicing. So it's not like you, in fact, it's, it's kind of saying maybe that we usually do want to get rid of fatigue by sleeping, <laughs> but in this case, we don't need to get rid of fatigue. It's okay. That would be another way to see see it the other way. Um, not exactly ignore it, but just um, <clears throat> maybe practically speaking, um, I mean, he's kind of going on a inspired kind of rant here about diligence, right? This is, the, I think, the theme of this chapter <coughs> is about um, diligent perseverance. Uh, but... Um, in fact, resting when it's appropriate to rest is is a practice, a bodhisattva practice. Um, if we're just nodding off all the time and, and sleeping, well, we just got to keep going. At some point, maybe we have the sense of it's too much. And so for each of us, it's it's a, this is the question. When is it over the top? When is it actually not helping our practice? For each of us, it's a, it's a very personal decision. And for each of us, in each moment, it's a, it's a new decision. There may be phases in our life where we're just, um, practice like our heads on fire, crazy. And then other times when it's like, that's just actually too contrived and extra. Um, and then, so back and forth, I think we find the middle way by, um, by, uh, <coughs> starting to veer into one extreme or the other, I think is how we find it. We start to, um, I'm feeling kind of lazy in my practice. So like make more effort and then I'm not going to sleep at all or something. And then 
then uh, we go to that extreme. And like, this is not helpful. My mind is just total haze, blurry dullness. I actually need more sleep. So then we go in that direction. Oh, very nice. I feel really awake in zazen now. And then we, and then we go more and more that way. And, and we're getting lots of too much sleep that we don't even need. And then like, actually, I could put some of this time into zazen. So then we go back the other way. I think this back and forth, um, finding a balanced way that's different for each of us. If we're working a lot and tired, we're going to need more sleep and more food. And if we're, if we're just sitting a lot, uh, our need is less. So naturally we find our middle way without having to um, eliminate anything. <coughs> but here, the, the spirit that Kazan is bringing forth, because it's this, this kind of unique story of Parshva who never lay down, um, he's reminding us of the side of diligence. And uh, <coughs> it's said that Parshva recited sutras Recited sutras does not necessarily consist of oral recitation or even holding a sutra in the hands and turning the pages silently. In Japanese, it's this term, um, tendoku, that means, um, revolving the sutras, where if the sutras, sutra books in, in Japanese temples are those accordion style, right? And you can like riffle, um, like a slinky. <laughs> you can, there's that style for special ceremonies usually of, um, large Prajnaparamita Sutra generally. It's too long to read it all. So, um, there's hundreds of volumes. You pass them one out to everybody in the assembly and they you just fan it out in the air. And the words of the sutras leap off the page into the atmosphere and you recite some mantras while you're doing it. Called, um, tendoku. Um, so, uh, reciting the sutras doesn't necessarily mean orally reciting them or just fanning them out in this way, um, turning them. It means dwelling carefully within the house of the Buddhas and ancestors and not vainly working within form and sound or within the womb of ignorance. <coughs> we usually don't think of reciting sutras like that. Reciting sutras, according to Kazan here, means dwelling carefully within the house of the Buddhas and ancestors. <clears throat> Which reminds me here to um, just stop for a brief um, advertisement. There's a new Zen book out this summer called um, Throw Yourself into the House of Buddha, similar to this line. And, uh, by, um, the late, uh, Tangen Harada Roshi, who's the teacher I practiced with in Japan for a year. And, um, I highly recommend it. 
I say it's the Zen book of the year. It's, it's short. It's short and sweet and, and accessible and a little bit like, I must feel like Zen mind beginner's mind. Like that short and simple but very, um, inspiring. Maybe I'm biased because when I read those words, I think of that, of that dear teacher. And, uh, also the book has, starts with his life story, which is quite dramatic and worth looking at the book just for his life story, actually. It's called Throw Yourself into the House of Buddha. <clears throat> now back to our regular show. <laughs> Where Kazan says, reciting sutras means dwelling carefully within the house of Buddha and the house of the ancestors, not vainly um, making effort, gong fu, uh, within form and sound or within the womb of ignorance. Here's all these colors and sounds, and we're often doing our work within the realm of forms and sounds. Uh, and uh, we can throw ourselves into the house of Buddha. House of Buddha is where um, is where all these forms and sounds are actually appearing, along with all these thoughts and feelings. There. Are they're uh, arising and ceasing within the uh, unchanging house of Buddha. And we can dwell carefully within this house, not vainly making this effort within sound and form or within the womb of ignorance. Reading sutras must mean arousing wisdom, Prajna everywhere and illuminating the mind ground at all times. This is uh, the Zen way of reading sutras. This was the practice of Parshva for three years. When you come to practice like this day and night, it's as if you are not dependent on anything. And you're not related to anything. Then this will be penetrating the essence of your unborn original nature. <coughs> Illuminating the ground of mind, the nature of mind. From which forms and sounds um, sprout forth. It's as if you're not dependent on anything. There's nothing in addition to be dependent on. And this will be penetrating the essence of your unborn original nature. <clears throat> Don't you realize that although we are born, there's no place we come from. And though we die and depart, there's no place to go to. 
This is what we're talking about this morning. Where is this present thought? It's appearing in awareness. Where is awareness? Well, it's no place. It's unlocated because it's not uh, a physical substance to have a location. It's unlocated and, uh, but vividly apparent. That which is unlocated cannot change. Only located phenomena can move or change. Although we appear to be born, there's no place really that we come from. And though we appear to die, there's no place to go to. We are born according to conditions, and we die according to conditions. This arising and ceasing never stops for even a moment. Therefore, <clears throat> or we could say this, this birth and death, arising and ceasing, never stops for a moment. But the place from which it's coming from and it's going to is the unborn, undying. This is also the unity of the principle and phenomena, the ultimate and the conventional. Therefore, birth is really not birth, and death is really not death. However, in your practice and study, do not dwell on birth and death as ordinarily conceived, nor block yourselves through seeing and hearing. Ordinary seeing and hearing of colors external to mind and sounds external to mind. <clears throat> Don't block yourselves through that kind of seeing and hearing. Seeing and hearing may arise. Sounds and forms may arise, but actually it's the self's treasury of radiant light. <clears throat> Seeing and hearing may arise, S sounds and colors may arise, but actually it's your own or your true self's uh, treasury of radiant light, the womb of radiant light, not the womb of ignorance. <clears throat> Kohen Ejo has a wonderful... Um, Zazen manual called um, uh, Treasury of Radiant Light Samadhi, which is, of course, another name for the self-enjoyment samadhi, 
which is, of course, another name for the jewel mirror samadhi, which is, of course, another name for ordinary mind is the way. So I think this is a, this is a, um, a wonderful, um, statement to, um, post on one's refrigerator door. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing and hearing may arise, sounds and colors may arise, but actually they are your own treasury of radiant light. Aren't they? What else could they be? They're, these these uh, sounds and colors are made out of radiant light. The treasury, the storehouse, the womb of uh, radiant light is the house of Buddha. And this is how we can recite sutras. Knowing this. When you, when, or, um, so, this, this is your treasury of radiant light. This is the house of Buddha. When it emits radiant light from your eyes, it adorns the world with colors and forms. When it, this treasury of radiant light, uh, emits light from your ears, it hears the sounds which are Buddha, When it emits light from the palms of our hands, it turns self and others, or it transforms self and others. When it emits light from the soles of our feet, There are forward and backward steps in walking. This is a wonderful paragraph, I think, of Kazan. He's forgetting all about, um, all about how Parshva never lay down to sleep. And it, there's that kind of diligence that's encouraged in practice, but here, uh, he's, I feel like Kazan's just saying it like it is. <clears throat> Very poetically and um, sweetly. I'll, I'll read this paragraph again since I really appreciate it. <coughs> I'm sort of mixing different translations here too. Seeing and hearing uh, may arise. Sounds and forms may arise. But these are 
your own treasury of radiant light, when it emits radiant light from your eyes, it adorns the world with colors and forms. When it emits light from your ears, it hears the sounds which are Buddha. When it emits light from the palms of our hands, it uh, transforms self and other, maybe in the way that um, Avalokiteshvara's helping hands transform. When um, it emits light from the soles of our feet, we advance and withdraw, or uh, there are forward and backward steps, <clears throat> both literally it it makes our bodies walk and uh figuratively it um it carries forward our diligent practice like parshva's great vow and it also um helps us learn the backward step uh that turns the light around and shines it back Any uh, comments or questions? Yes. So you mentioned in one sentence the storehouse. Yes, the storehouse of radiant light. Right. So I hear that. I always think about um, Yogacara store and the storehouse. Storehouse. So. That made me think of this as an analogy for our actions, speech, and thought, and that connection between the relative and the absolute that we enact with those. That are that the that the storehouse consciousness is the source of our actions of body, speech, and mind. Yeah, there is the Yogacara teaching of the, um, the storehouse consciousness. I would say um, in that story, the Yogacara story, the storehouse consciousness is, um, <coughs> is sometimes said to be like a storehouse of delusion. It's actually like um, it's holding all our karmic patterns and it's... it's um, it's what's facilitating rebirth of a of a person, and um, and so on. And it's the it's all our karmic seeds are planted, and then it gives rise to further karmic actions of body, speech, and mind. So, um, and we could say that that whole that Yogacara story of the storehouse consciousness, that whole thing is kind of like um, slightly distorted by by basic um, ignorance that is dualistic um, perception and the and the and the the thought and feeling of being a separate self <coughs> that's the that's the storehouse consciousness and then this this storehouse uh, of radiant light 
is um you could say the true nature of this of the storehouse consciousness it's the non diluted version of it so um both are similar in that both um uh, give rise to um appearances but the storehouse consciousness gives rise to um dualistic appearances and the uh the storehouse of radiant light here, um, as Kazan was saying, um, like, it emits light, it emits its radiant light from your eyes and adorns the world with color and forms. So it sounds very similar, but, <coughs> but uh, I would interpret it as this, these colors and forms that emerge from your storehouse of radiant light if we understand um, that that's what they are, they're just adornments. They're non-dual adornments. They're, um, they're these colors and sounds are the are the pure expression of the pure radiant light, rather than a kind of distorted um, emanation from a kind of distorted storehouse consciousness. So you could say the story is almost the same. Except one is a distorted version, and one is a um, purified version. So, uh, <coughs> and that's why, like in the um, like the Lankavatara Sutra, uh, it says that this storehouse consciousness, the Alaya Vijnana, is also called the Tathagatagarbha, which is a little bit more like the storehouse of radiant light. When it's seen clearly, it is the source of all um, pure appearances. And when it's not seen clearly, it's the source of all impure appearances. So yes, thanks for bringing that up. Yes. I mean, it sounds like that's something you're saving up and like something that diminishes. Yeah, so, this, so the storehouse consciousness, or alaya, does mean something like um, storehouse, like the Himalaya mountains. Himal means snow. So um, Himalaya is the storehouse of snow, that, that mountain range. Uh, so, in a way, the, the storehouse consciousness, it is, it's kind of, um, it's not like a thing, right? It's not a physical container. It's, it's a men, it's, it's, um, a type of consciousness. But it's a type of consciousness that when trying to put it into words, it's spoken of as if it is storing stuff up, actually. And what it, what is it storing up? It's storing up like these karmic imprints from the past. It's storing memories and uh, habitual tendencies uh, like that. So, um, and then, and each person has their own storehouse consciousness, according to this story, and that's what is reborn uh, in the Yogacara tradition, um, which is why there's these individual streams of consciousness that are um, reborn and they don't get sort of all mixed together in the Buddhist story. 
And, uh, and a lot of jhana is sometimes taught to be like a stream. So it's, it's, uh, it's called a, a container or a storehouse, which doesn't seem like a stream. So just so we don't get stuck in any metaphor, the teaching also says it, it's flowing. The storehouse consciousness is flowing like a river. So, uh, we say, well, that's, a totally different image. Well, that's because it's hard to put into words. But the storing aspect is kind of like what um, what um, allows uh, the fruition of karmic actions to ripen at a so-called later time. So it has this kind of storing aspect, and uh, and then the um, this. The storehouse of radiant light is um, <coughs> is even less like it's storing anything up at all. <laughs> um, that's the uh, um, in Japanese komyozo is a radiant light storehouse, and this zo is the same as like shobogenzo. So we often say the treasury of the true Dharma eye. <laughs> Or, um, but we could say the storehouse of all the Dharma eyes, or, um, or the womb. It also translates the, the term womb, <laughs> the, the womb of the true Dharma eye from which all, um, Dharma wisdom is born. So these are all connotations. Or, um, the Bodhisattva Jizo is the same Zo, also like, um, we say like earth storehouse, earth treasury, bodhisattva. Uh, yes? This, I don't know the Japanese, the Fukanda Bengi, but it's, it sounds similar to what you're talking about. That, you know, the treasure store? Yeah, revere the person of complete attainment who is beyond all human agency. Gain accord with the enlightenment of the Buddha, succeed to the legitimate lineage of the ancestor Samadhi, constantly perform in such a manner, and you are assured of being a person such as they. Your treasure store will open of itself, and you will use it at will. Yes, yes, your treasure store. Is it a zone? I think it's the zone. I have to check for sure, but I think it is the same one. Your treasure store, uh, your treasure storehouse. Um, will open of its own accord, will open naturally. So here I think we're talking not about the storehouse consciousness, but the radiant light store will open of itself and you will use it freely or as you wish. That The very last lines of the Fukanda Zengi are um, nyoi. So sometimes these kind of sticks, especially if they have a, a big flowery end, are called nyoi. And it means as you wish or as you like or at will. Um, so you will, your treasure store will naturally open and it will, it will be a nyoi for you. Yes? If there's no separate self, then why don't the streams of consciousness kind of mix together, as you say? Why incarnate if there's no separate self, then why don't the streams of con- of consciousness mix together? That's a great question, and it's I think it's good to clarify these points, at least how the tradition 
or to understand it um, because they're difficult points and we often don't talk about them in the Zen realm. But I think it to help clarify this also helps clarify other points too uh, in the Dharma. So we could say that... Um, uh, One way I like to, to define, and I think this is, um, this is, uh, Mark Sideritz, maybe phrase, a Buddhist scholar, that I think really trying to express this in, in a few words. It might sound clunky to you, but, um, we could say what an individual, um, karmic stream that we call like a person is a, um, a causal series of body and mind experiences. That you could say, conventionally speaking, what we call a person, not like their Buddha nature, but a conventional, um, relative, uh, so-called person. What, a, what is a so-called person? It's a, um, it's a causal series of body and mind experiences. So, or five skandhas would be another way to say it. So, well, when we look for a person, we just see these five skandhas, or for short, um, a body and mind experience. But it's not just one moment of body and mind experience, and then it's gone, right? There's some, there's some continuity, um, in Kokyo's life and in Mel's life, and we don't get all mixed up together, right? So why is that? Um, without there being some, some entity of unchanging personal self, there's a causal series of body and mind experiences. So, um, causal series means it's like, like, like a river is a causal series of, um, uh, of water. <laughs> right? There's like, there's like water here and then, um, then downstream a little bit in the series that we call the river. There's, um, some more water and then downstream a little bit, there's some more water. So when we look at the, the whole thing is just a, a flowing, impermanent, um, river with no, with no fixed independent self. But it, we call, we call it a river as if it's one thing. But when we look closely, we see it's just this causal series, uh, moment to moment, arising and ceasing flow. And that, that's a unique, that unique, uh, river is called like the Hudson River. It's a unique causal series. And then the Mississippi River is another causal series. So each person is like unique causal series that this moment of, um, Kokyo's body and mind is dependent on the previous moment of Kokyo's body and mind, which is dependent on the previous moment of Kokyo's body and mind. And, there's nothing that lasts for more than a moment um, that we could call Kokyo. Um, and yet, uh, there's this interdependent relationship with the past moments, the previous moments, going all the way back. And also, the causal series, the river-like people, are also interdependent with each other. So it's not like they're fixed, separate entities. We are influencing each other moment by moment, while we're together, right? But um, the kind of karmic stream and kind of memory bank and all of this is like um, 
is individual. Individual but without any um, permanent entity. Does that make sense? Can you follow this image of a, ca- a causal series of body and mind experiences? It's a, it's a model, it's a conceptual model that explains how there's continuity um, without there being a separate self. And that continuity is just um, an impermanent flux, but a particular impermanent flux for each person. So that would be like the Buddha's understanding of how karma, karmic effects, which is like the effects of our intentional actions, come back to the person who did them, but there's no self. They come back to the person who did them means they come back to a later moment in the causal series. Like, and, and that also explains how we wake up in the morning and we're not like a completely different person, right? We're like, we're not exactly the same either. You could say that when we wake up in the morning, that person that um, wakes up is dependent on the, you know, the one that went to sleep the night before. There's a dependent relationship, you know, particularly strong dependence on that causal series, also dependent on the other people and this person's life, but particularly strong dependence on the previous moments in this particular causal series. Can you follow the story? Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, so Buddha, when he became fully enlightened, the causal series that had accumulated mm-hmm. in his stream dissipated. Yes. You want to call it that. And storehouse in the Manas was completely changed. Yeah. Because of that. Yeah. So that light mm-hmm. from Buddha <coughs> was because of that dissipation in my thinking. Yeah, so so this is yeah, we, the the this causal series explains a series of rebirths, the causal series of consciousness. It's body and mind experiences, but the body the so-called material body has its own causal series. When we die, it becomes earth or ashes or something. But there's a lot of emphasis on consciousness. There's a causal series of conscious moments, too, in the in the Buddhist teaching. And uh, in a totally materialistic view, it's like, no, and, you, and the body dies, it's the end. But the Buddha is saying, no, consciousness has the same kind of um, causal series, too. And that that's in a way, what's reborn. It's not one stream of consciousness. It's not an entity of consciousness that's reborn. It's a causal series that's reborn. And then in the Yogacara story, they just they try to clarify this even more by saying, we're going to call this causal series that was there in the early teachings, we're going to now call it the Alaya Vijnana. <laughs> that's the causal series that's reborn. And it stores the karmic patterns that determine the next birth and so on. But then, yes, for a Buddha, a Buddha, um, you could say, uh, you know, it's kind of like ends, ends the causal series. How does that happen? It, one way to s- try to say it might be like the Buddha sees that this whole causal series stories is just a conventional truth. Um, it really plays out just like 
just like the the Zendo and the t- city of Austin are conventional truths. They really have effects, right? But they're just conventionally true. The Buddha sees that there's nothing but the but the storehouse of radiant light, and um, and uh, but interestingly, as we heard this morning, right, the Buddha's awakening. These first two knowings, these first two visions the Buddha had were kind of like about this conventional story. First was into like seeing his own previous lives in the causal series. So as they were, it's kind of conventional, a conventional but profound insight. And then seeing the workings of karmic, karma and rebirth for all other beings too was also kind of a conventional but profound insight. My teacher likes to say these first two types of insights were like shamanic visions. And the third, that's the end of ignorance, was more like the Buddha vision. You don't need the shamanic ones, but they came they came along with the Buddha's awakening. <clears throat> so the uh so the Yogacara story would be that the storehouse consciousness, which is the causal series, is is um revealed to be. Sometimes it's the transformation of the basis. But it's not really that it's transformed. I, I would say, strictly speaking, it's just that it's revealed to be not a storehouse of karmic duality, but the treasury of radiant light. Or um, the Yogacara story says it's the um, um, perfect mirror awareness. And I'll say things like the storehouse for a Buddha. The storehouse consciousness is transformed into this perfect mirror non-dual awareness, but it might be more accurate to say that it always was the uh, um, perfect mirror non-dual awareness. And for the Buddha now, Buddha sees that what was always appearing for many lifetimes as as the storehouse consciousness of delusion was always truly the perfect mirror wisdom uh, awareness, which is another name for the treasury of radiant light. Gotta love these stories. I mean, they're, they're stories, right? But uh, the tradition is, it's been 2,500 years of storytelling. So these stories, like, I think they get better and better as people like, how does this work? And they bring it into meditation. How can we try to say it? <laughs> uh, oh yes. So, if a, if a Buddha or an enlightened being uh, kind of or does it break these uh, the dependent origination or at least the cause and effect? Uh, how would they, I guess, go about their life? Would they still rely on past karmic patterns, or would they, would they be completely broken off from that? Would they just like sit there and do nothing? <laughs> so the question is, for if they so-called break break like the chain of dependent arising that leads to suffering, or again, we might say in a maybe more non-dual way, rather than breaking the chain, we could also put it like they see through the chain, they see through the conventional appearance of this chain of dependent arising, and then they're a Buddha. So then, you know, for like bodhisattvas or um, great practitioners, we can kind of imagine it in different ways, but when the tradition talks about these perfectly awakened Buddhas, 
the stories get really far out. Like it's almost like nobody wants to like nail it down what a Buddha really is. But one story um, is that uh, what what happens then, or how does what's a Buddha then, is more like they don't have any um, intention left. Their intention was like a, a conventional thing that people have, and the, the Buddha, like all of it seen through any traces of individuality are gone. But yet, the Shakyamuni Buddha looked like a person walking around. It looked like he had intentions and stuff, but then one story is that, um, the Buddha, the Buddha that appears, the Nirmanakaya Buddha that appears to people, is um is just based on their intentions. That's one story. That the that the Buddha is not actually something from the Buddha's own perspective, there's actually nothing the Buddha doesn't think of himself as like some a person or a Buddha. But other people the, the Buddha appears to other people according to their intentions and their kind of aspirations to see the Buddha. That's a, one kind of far out story, or um, or mixed with that, either a, a variation on that theme, or it could be combined. Maybe is that um, what again appears to be the Buddha is based on the vows that the Buddha made when he was a bodhisattva to benefit beings. So um, maybe it's almost the same story, with slightly different angle. Is that so? The Buddha is like teaching these sutras and things like that. And like, is the Buddha deciding to do that to help people? No, it's not because there's no intention left. But when the Buddha was a bodhisattva, for infinite lifetimes, he was, I vow to benefit beings through through trying to um, understand and present the truth to them. And so based on those past vows, almost like the vows are, the effects of the vows are playing out, even though there's nobody there anymore. That would be another story. They wouldn't be sitting there on Tuesdays, they only Chinese food or something. They might appear that way. Um, but, uh, if it, if it would be helpful for beings for the Buddha to get Chinese food. (laughs) (laughs) But usually the, the, yeah, the stories are that the Buddha, um, like one of his ways that he thought would be helpful rather than like ordering that Chinese food, he would just go along with his bowl and like, you, people need a lot of merit here. So like, if you want to like put any food in this bowl, it's going to be really beneficial for you. I don't know if it will be for me. In fact, somebody put some bowl, some food in the bowl that killed them apparently. Uh, apparently. But, um, but he thought this would be a good way, um, to eat. <laughs> just let people give whatever they want. Well, there was, for all these infinite lifetimes as the Bodhisattva, <clears throat> there was this deep intention to benefit beings. But then the, one story would be like, upon Buddhahood, when the Bodhisattva path ends, and the, now it's a Buddha that's kind of gone beyond, gone beyond um, any any conceivable anything, something like that, then there's, <clears throat> then just the, the effects of those intentions play out in the world of appearances as a Nirmanakaya Buddha to benefit beings. 
And then we have the Dharmakaya Buddha, uh, Vairochana Buddha, the pure Dharmakaya is, um, one, one definition of the Dharmakaya is, is simply when this, um, as I was mentioning the other day, when Buddha nature, the, the storehouse of radiant light is completely obscured, it's called a sentient being. When it's partially obscured, it's called a bodhisattva. And when the, the Buddha nature is completely unobscured by any, anything, by any like conceptual thoughts or perceptions or, um, patterns or kleshas or anything, then it's called a Buddha, but it's particularly called a Dharmakaya Buddha or Buddha nature when it's totally unobscured is called Dharmakaya. There's that, this, the tradition has that story. And then the Dharmakaya is just formless, right? It's just like empty space, but it manifests as in so-called Nirmanakaya, a transformation body, a manifestation body, in order to benefit beings that relate to bodies. Like the Dharmakaya can't really benefit others because it's just like space. But there's only one Dharmakaya, but there's myriad Nirmanakaya. Yeah, you could say it like that, that there's one Dharmakaya, or you could say, maybe the tradition would like to say that... Um, even to say one is too conceptually limited. It's like beyond one or many. It doesn't fit into even categories of one, but it's kind of like one. I think we we can, I don't mind saying it's like um, indivisible. It's indivisible dharmakaya, and then that manifests as, yes, that's true, as, as myriad nirmanakaya, as myriad transformation bodies. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, right? It really refers to all the beings. All the Buddhas, myriad, myriad appearing Buddhas. So, like Bibashi Butsu Dayosho, Shiki Butsu Dayosho, Bishafu Butsu Dayosho, Kurason Butsu Dayosho, Kunagon Muni Butsu Dayosho, Kasho Butsu Dayosho, and Shakamuni Butsu Dayosho, and then Amitabha Buddha, and Bhaisadya Guru Buddha, and we have all these Buddhas, and we could say they're Nirmanakayas. Some of them are called Sambhogakayas. There's myriad Sambhogakayas too, like Amitabha is generally considered like um, a Sambhogakaya. Like Amitabha and his pure land only appear to certain bodhisattvas. They don't usually appear to us. So Sambhogakayas, like they're still appearing to benefit beings, but um, <clears throat> they're not like so fleshy and bloody and bony as like Shakyamuni Buddha. They're just like light bodies. We have a lot of stories in this Buddha Dharma <laughs> tradition. Was this, yes? Uh, can you read the, like the light emitted from eyes or ears? What is it the case I'm just saying? Yes, yes, yes. And there's different translations too, so. I was, you know, choosing my own uh, mix of translations according to my own karmic conditioning. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, I was trying to um, put it in a way that um, that uh, that the light from the, from the um, the light of the storehouse, the light of the um, treasury of radiant light, um, that light and this kind of impersonal light, kind of impersonal light from the shared um, indivisible treasury of radiant light comes through our eyes. That's kind of how I was seeing it. Do you want to hear that part again? That um, seeing and hearing may arise, sounds and forms may arise, um, or, yeah, though, though seeing and hearing may arise, though sounds and colors may arise, um, it becomes, or it is actually your own treasury of radiant light. When it emits radiant light from your eyes, it adorns the world with color and forms. This translation actually says, when you emit this radiant light from your eyes, you adorn the world with color and forms. So that's okay too. But it doesn't, um, it doesn't have a pronoun in the Japanese, so you, you could, um, or a subject of the sentence. So you could say, just the light, the radiant light, um, is emitted from your eyes, or you emit it. So I kind of went with it. It just comes through because you don't have any say in how it works. So I think there's, um, I, there's the three things that I'm trying to connect, and it feels like I want it, you know, I don't know, I feel like it would go towards connecting relative and absolute. So thinking about the storehouse of radiant light and Buddha nature, and how that is all-inclusive and which I would call those synonyms, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and we could call it the ultimate truth. Yes. yes. And then we have the fact that or we have this phrase that this is that this light is emitted or is adorned. The world is adorned through this light coming through our yes. eyes or from our eyes. Yes. And that feels relative, while also being absolute, like the absolute truth of the relative experience. And then the third thing that I want to connect into that is Prajnaparamita as a source of light to remove darkness. And that word source feels distinct from, like, it's leaking through your eyes and, and dripping over everything. Right? So it's like... She's the source of the light in your eyes. So she is the source of the light in my eyes. And it is the same light? It is this radiant light? I would say so. It's also called Prajnaparamita. Um... Yeah. She herself is an organ of vision. Uh, she has a clear knowing of, um, the, the, the self nature of all dharmas. So, I guess, is this, I wanna take it as Not, maybe permission is the right word. Permission to be playful with and to enjoy all things in my experience as an expression of or as an adornment of this radiant life. Yes, yes. I think that's what I was trying to describe earlier about this 
the difference between this, the storehouse consciousness, everything that, um, that, uh, emanates from it. And that is the, the teaching that like, there's all these seeds in the storehouse and they sprout as our present experience. And the whole thing is like distorted with dualistic, with duality, basically. Um, that would be like a, a relative, and that's a, that would be a relative world as we usually understand it. There's these things that are interdependent with each other, but they're separate and so on. Um, and then this other model of that the, the store has a radiant light, um, kind of drips out of our eyes and adorns the world with color and sound. One way to hear that would be like, then that kind of color and sound understood in that way and clearly, um, understood in that way <clears throat> would be like a little bit like there's, there's ultimate appearances. Um, they, you know, color and sound, we usually would say relative appearances, but they're, if they're the display of pure non-dual awareness and understood to be that way and the colors and sounds are not separate from then it's almost like the colors and sounds are ultimate um, ultimate appearances i think this is what you're asking yeah yeah, yeah. It, feels, it feels weird it's like blurring that line yeah it's blurring the line yeah yeah and then the project for music feels like it blurs the line even further because it feels like there's a vow there connection mm. in, in 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 the parameters of it and and i, and I don't understand that also part of the part of this line blurring that we're talking about here um I just want to acknowledge that um my understanding and limited understanding of the, these different models is um it's I I'm having trouble finding that kind of thing these like pure appearances in the Mahayana teachings exactly like that but the Vajrayana which I also practice in these traditions that's where they really try to very carefully articulate something like this. And, and, um, it's like, re- it's like trying to, um, push non-duality to the end. And so they have terms like, um, pure appearances or, um, divine appearances that is not exactly, it might be in the Mahayana, uh, teachings too, but, it's not coming to mind. I think the Zen teachings sometimes hint at it this way, but it's sort of in the in the framework or system of, of Vajrayana, where um, uh, like pure and pure perception. There's the practice of trying to understand this and then um, see that this world, which we usually call the conventional world of appearances a kind of world of delusion and trouble, to um, open more and more to, this is a pure land. This is the Buddha's pure land. A little bit we have some things like that in Zen, but they try to really articulate this principle. And pure perception would be like, see, really understanding that even what looks impure in this world is um, p- the pure display of Buddhas, and everybody that we see is fully actualized Buddhas. And so why do they appear like that? Well, just to help us. You know, so this is a kind of like, um, something like that. So it's almost like they're just, there's still a multiplicity of appearances, but they're almost like they're called ultimate truth. 
which we usually don't talk that way. Yes. That's uh, kind of that's kind of how I took his on a rant. Yeah. And also, um, similar. You mean this last part about the? No, the, the first rant where he was kind of like, um, go 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 beyond. Uh huh. Really, really engage for yourself and mm-hmm. into the soup. Yeah. Of, of life and just wholeheartedly give yourself over to the things that the pain in your legs. And, uh, um, and then also, the if we if we can open more and more to how all that is, the um, the manifestation of the storehouse of radiant light. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. To verify it, just kind of like how much can I just open to the raw intensity of being alive? And I don't think it's has to be always look like. It. Yeah. Apparently, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So you feel, you know, when, with that, in some like a lot of time, like really painful. But there's, um, they're also just turning the wheel of Dharma. But I, I think his last kind of thing about the backward step and the forward step, like that's where it, it can become possible to not be in absolute agony about my legs. Without <laughs> 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 taking the backwards step while um, really while taking the forward really step. Really engaging with looking at my legs. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, that's, that's yeah. Yeah. That that um and and I think we could also make a make a slight distinction between um <clears throat> all these conventional appearances. I just accept them as they are <clears throat> these conventional appearances. A slight difference between that and these conventional appearances are really not what I think, and that's why I can really accept them. That they go beyond um, my idea of conventional appearances, and then then it's not like exactly I'm putting up with them. It's more like they really are radiant light. So so yes, I think you're right that in that uh, as I say in Zen, it kind of it pushes right up to this limit of non-duality too. And whether they would classify these pure appearances as the ultimate truth, maybe they just don't get so into classifying things. I say Vajrayana is like, we gotta put it in one camp or the other. <laughs> so, um, but I think the principle is there, yeah. Today I have some humble words that concern this principle. Would you like to hear them? Yes. Kaylan says, uh, <coughs> mm, turning, coming, turning, going. So it's referring to this um, revolving of the sutras. 
turning the sutras, uh, turning, coming, and turning, going. So many sutra scrolls, and also samsara is a a, a cycle of turning, right? So um, I think he's combining this idea of turning the sutras, reciting the sutras, is like this turning of samsara revolving from lifetime to lifetime is all packed in here. Turning, coming, turning, going, so many sutra scrolls, born here, dying there, nothing but chapters and phrases of the sutra. Nothing but, born here, dying there, all this is nothing but chapters and phrases of this great Mahayana Sutra.